Just a word of encouragement as you reflect on that video. I do some work in the Dominican Republic, and in the area where I work, uh, child trafficking is really common because there's a lot of tourism there. And about two years ago, IJM, in conjunction with local police, they uncovered and dismantled a trafficking operation uh, just down the road from where I live there. And, and what I want you to know is that International Justice Ministry they're the real deal when it comes to bringing justice to bear in places where corruption rules the day. A lot of people want to do this. That's what they really, really do. And so if you're looking for a place to invest in the welfare of those who are oppressed, this is a really great place to start. So go visit IJM.org or speak to the uh, lady in the lobby who's manning the table there. You'll be glad that you did. Good morning, like uh, Rob Craig said, my name is Noah Joyner. I'm really glad to be with you this morning, and if you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. Um, I'm filling in for Larry, who is our lead pastor, and I sound like I'm in a shower. <laughs> so in uh, giving him the ability to go to the men's retreat, I filled in for him this week. Um, and I'd like to do something a little bit different this morning as we get started, kind of out of the norm for us. Uh, I'd like for you all to take a moment and to meet someone that you don't know so well in our church. Uh, you may feel like you know everybody. Pick the person maybe you know the least. Uh, stand up. So you're going to stand up. And you're going to kind of get discombobulated. It's okay. You can, you're, nobody will take your seat. So meet someone. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to ask them how you can pray for them. Pray with them, and then I'll pray, and we'll get back going. Okay, now ask your friend how you can pray for them. Ask your friend how you can pray for them and then pray for them, and then we will pray together.
Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for our church. We ask that as we look into your word this morning, you would be with us, you would draw near to us, you would fellowship with us, that you would open us up in sweet kindness towards you by your spirit. God, that we'd hear your voice as we open your word, that that secret place where we need to be ministered to would be ministered to, that place only that you can speak to and touch and heal, that you would do that this morning, and that in doing that, that our hearts would be grown in affection towards you, that we would see your greatness and we would proclaim it to ourselves and to others. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. As most of you know, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews for the last eight months, and we're getting to the end, and this morning we're going to be doing a brief recap of the book so that we can make sure we know where we've been, and then uh, I also want to, sh- I want to stir you up, to use the language of the book of Hebrews, to stir you up to love God in a way that helps you better love your neighbors, and I know of no better fire poker, if you will, than how the writer of the Hebrews talks about Jesus. And so we're gonna, I'm gonna stir you up this morning with Jesus, that's, that's the idea. And so we're gonna do something a little bit different. Usually here at North Wake, we take a passage, and look at that passage and kind of explain it, kind of like we were looking at one mountain, kind of explain it, and then we move on to another mountain the next week. So this week, we're gonna do something a little bit different. I'm gonna kind of take you from peak to peak, right? Kind of imagine a mountain range, The book of Hebrews is a mountain range. I'm going to take you from one peak to another. So we're going to have lots of passages. There'll be lots of of text on the uh, screen here. Uh, Don't feel like you've got to chase me, kind of looking from passage to passage, but stay with me. What I want to do is to to make you think great things about Jesus. That's the first thing that I'm really going to be after. So what I want you to do is to be thinking about the things you see and the things you read, kind of letting them soak into into who you are. So to prepare this, to teach this morning, I had to read back through the book again, and, and I would encourage you to do that this week. I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a slow reader, um, and so it took me about an hour to do that. And so most of us could easily find an hour to do that today or this week. So, so maybe skip the first half of the game, or you know, get up a little bit earlier, or nix an episode of, of that Netflix series that you're not really enjoying anyway. And, and get into the book. Read this book again. It is gold. There's gold here. There's treasure. And that's what I want to show you this morning is the, the beauty and the height and the depth of the, this book and primarily its main character. And that's exactly how the book of Hebrews starts. It starts by introducing the main character. So who is the main character of the book of Hebrews? Anybody know? His name is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So yeah, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so God created the world through his son, Jesus. Jesus 
owns it all. So whatever billions Bill Gates owns is on loan from Jesus. That's Jesus' money because he owns it all. Furthermore, he says that the sun is like the, the rays of light coming from the Father. He is the way we see and experience all of who God is, just like the rays from the sun are how you experience and see the sun. And if we were to, to trace over the invisible God, right, if you were to trace over him with a pencil, the resulting photo would be Jesus. He is exactly what God is. And in addition, he holds up the universe with a word. It's as if he's saying that the power of Christ is so much that the whole universe is propped up on Jesus' word. It holds it all up. And then in chapter 2, we see this. In 2, 5 through 9, it says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so by way of quoting one of the Psalms, the writer makes the point, Jesus is the greatest human to ever live. And he did all that man was supposed to do. All that stuff Adam was supposed to do that he didn't do, Jesus did that. And he lived a perfect life so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. He is the summary of all that humanity should be. So when you look at humanity and you say, man, it's broken, and you wonder, well, what would it be like if it weren't broken? Jesus. That's what it would be like. So not only is Jesus truly God, he is truly man in every aspect imaginable. And because that is true, he can offer salvation to the world. And then in chapter 3, the writer compares Jesus to Moses when he says, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things were to, that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we uphold or we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So it's hard to express the importance that Moses played in the life of the Jewish people. And, and we really don't have an equivalent in American culture, but, but I'll, try, I'll give it a try. I'll try to explain it to you. So Moses would be like if you took George Washington, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, John Wayne, Steve Jobs, Michael Jackson, and Michael Jordan, and you tied them all together with a rope made of apple pie, Starbucks, and gasoline. And I'm not overstating my case here. As important as all these are to American heritage and culture, that is what Jesus is to the Hebrews. There's nothing comparable in our culture. He, he's it. So the writer, he, he then makes this house illustration. And he says, Moses is a servant in that house. But Jesus is the son over the house. 
So, so he is greater than Moses in the way that sons are greater than servants in a house. And guess who the house is? Who does it say the house is? Us. All those who hold fast their confidence and keep on boasting in their hope. So what is their confidence? What is their hope? The one who offers salvation. Jesus, the son of God, the perfect man, the son over the house. So in some ways, even what we are is greater than Moses because of what Christ has done. So the writer, he's, he's sketching this picture for us that's kind of really starting to come into view. And it's like Bob Ross. Anybody remember Bob Ross? So, so Bob Ross, you know, you start watching the guy and he's, he's painting and you're like, what is he doing? Like, where is he going? And then all of a sudden, it all starts to kind of come into view and it's all... You know, it's, it's all happy trees and mountains and lakes, and you're, you're getting it. And, and that's what seems to be happening through the book here. If you don't know who Bob Ross is, do yourself a favor. Uh, look him up. Yes, the guy with the big hair. So he establishes who Jesus is really clearly, and then he starts to delve into how this Jesus accomplishes salvation. And he's going to do this by using categories that the Hebrew audience, that they would know really well. And so some are a bit foreign to us, so I'll try and lay them out in a way that's easy to understand. So look, at me with, uh, look with me at Hebrews 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made perfect like his brothers in every aspect or in every respect so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so, so we see again that Jesus was human in every aspect, that it means to be human. And this was in order that he would become the one who would make the sacrifice for sin necessary for man to come back into relationship with God. And so you see this word propitiation here. It's a really strong biblical word with lots of importance. But if, if we look at it and think about it, it, it means something like a sacrifice that receives God's anger against sin and disobedience, or a sacrifice that satisfies and it removes the penalty of sin. It's a sacrifice that does everything that needs to be done to bring man into right relationship with God by faith. It's that strong of a sacrifice. Then we see in chapter 4 how the humanity and sinlessness of Jesus becomes a source of confidence for us. So in 4.14 he says, since then, we have a great high priest, this is Jesus, who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus understands us and our struggle with sin, because he was tempted and yet never sinned. So we can and should run near to our king when we are tempted. That's the point here, because he knows how much mercy and grace we need. And then in chapter 7, he continues to kind of sketch out the greatness of Christ as seen in his perfect life and sacrifice and what it accomplishes for those who draw near. In 725, he says this, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, that means like really high all the way completely, those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the other ones, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus died once, not over and over again, once. His sacrifice, one time, was enough for all who trust in his sacrifice. But now he lives. He didn't just die, he's raised again, he lives. And he lives to intercede for us. And he, he intercedes between God and man for us. This means our salvation is of the absolutely and totally complete. It is done, it is finished. And how fitting is it that God would provide this type of priest? What other type of priest would God provide? High and exalted and separated from sinners. But he's calling us to draw near. Wow, that's amazing, right? That he's separated from sinners but says come near. His one-time sacrifice saves completely. It's done. It's finished. He did it all. And then chapter 9 tells us what Christ paid to accomplish this great salvation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered into this heavenly tent once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He offered nothing less than his own blood, his own life on a cross to secure an eternal redemption. Or another way to say it might be that he bought us and he owns us forever. God's people are safe forever because Jesus bought them with his blood. It can't be undone. It can't be changed forever, eternal, complete, finished. And because this is true, the writer can say things like this in chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so my hope that I will always be safe with God is because Jesus has gone into the place where his father is and he is an anchor that holds my soul. He has lashed me to his father by his blood. It can't be untied. It's secure. It doesn't let go. It holds within the veil. And so my soul is safe. And so if this is true and I believe it, I can rest and that is exactly the idea in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. 
We who believe have entered the rest that God offers, that it's by belief that we rest like God rested with him in relationship. And here the writer looks back to the people of God in the past who didn't really trust God and his provision for them. And they did not have faith that God was good. Their fear drove them far away from God. But a true fear of a good God drives us under his wings for care and provision. God says, trust me, come and rest in all I provide. When we trust Jesus, we rest in what he provides. This confidence in Christ gives us the ability to confidently face suffering and persecution and death and even final judgment. And this is how the writer can say things like this in chapter nine. And just as it is appointed for one man to die, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So we have a salvation, a rest in Christ that is so secure and so firm and so confidence-giving that we can wait for Christ to return eagerly. I don't know if you guys knew this, but yesterday was supposed to be the beginning of the end again. Um, but you know what? You know what I did? I did everything normal like it was Saturday. And it was Saturday. It wasn't beginning of the end, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it is. But you know what? I can face the beginning of the end with confidence because the anchor holds within the veil. He is my hope. He has paid it all. He paid my penalty. I have a right relationship with God because of what Christ has done, and I can trust that, and that does not change. And so I have confidence. I have hope. I can face the end, and I can face judgment, and I can face the return of Christ because that day will complete the salvation that he's offered to me. The writer of Hebrews has reached deep into his color palette in order to paint his readers a picture of Christ who is greater than all other beings, people, prophets, priests, systems, or sacrifices. I personally believe that there is no richer presentation of Christ and the great salvation that he offers on this side of heaven. The book of Hebrews is painting for us something so clear and so deep and so rich as to beckon us to God, as to draw us near. And as we gaze at, at that grand photo of the sun, I'd like to ask you to do something. I want, you to, I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about the most beautiful landscape you've ever seen. So think in your mind the most beautiful landscape you've ever seen and think about how you would describe it to me. What words would you, would you use? What would you say to me to, to bring me into that experience? And if I was given that task, I would tell you of a, of a sunset in the Mojave Desert in Joshua Tree National Forest in California where there were so many colors. I, I never saw colors like this anywhere in the world put together. The spectrum of colors in that sunset was astounding. It took the words from me. I, 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 I couldn't name all of the colors. I didn't know it was possible. Or, or I'd tell you about a view of the northern lights on a really, really cold Alaskan night where it looked like a green sheet was just waving across the sky. Never seen anything like that in my life. 
Or I tell you about stargazing on one of the hottest nights I've ever experienced anywhere in Haiti. And there's no power in this city, none, no, no light pollution at all. And it's like the stars are here and you can see bands and strips of galaxies and billions of stars. It seemed like you could just reach out and pluck them out of the sky. But one place I've, I've never seen is the Grand Canyon. And, and listen to the way that people talk about the Grand Canyon. The wonders of the Grand Canyon cannot be adequately represented in symbols or speech, nor by speech itself. The resources of graphic art are taxed beyond their powers to, their powers in attempting to portray its features. Language and illustration combined must fail. And then uh, one, one equates seeing the Grand Canyon with, with other great emotions. He says this, it's like trying to describe what you feel when you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon or remembering your first love or the birth of your first child. He's comparing seeing the Grand Canyon with the birth of your first child. You have to be there to really know what it's like. And then one says, you can't see the Grand Canyon in one view as if it were a changeless spectacle from which a curtain might be lifted. But to see it, you have to toil from month to month through its labyrinth. He says you've got to get down into it to really experience it. Spend time with it. Make time with the Grand Canyon. And clearly, these are people who have beheld something great and want others to know it, yet there's an experience of it that's necessary. They're all kind of saying you, you have to see it for yourself. Uh, recently, my, my friend Jake Mason, who you all know and love, one of our pastors here, and his family, they went to the Grand Canyon while on a trip out west. So when he got back, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I want to ask him, like, what, what was it like? And so I asked him, man, how was the Grand Canyon? And he, and he scrunches his face up. You know how Jake does? He kind of scrunches his face up. And he says, meh, it wasn't all that. <laughs> he said, he said, I'd give it like a two and a half, maybe a three. And I said, Jake, like you were at the Grand Canyon? He's like, yeah, it was the Grand Canyon. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Got pictures. He assured me it was the Grand Canyon, like he wasn't lost. And I was surprised because everyone I know who has been to the Grand Canyon affirms its grandness, except Jake. I was very confused. I've never heard anybody say this. I don't think anyone has ever said that before. But brothers and sisters, I think this might be similar to the way we receive the image of Christ that the writer of Hebrews is drawing for us. It's not bad, but it's not all that captivating. Eh, it's not all that. Many times that can, that can be the way that we approach this massively beautiful, inexplainable photo you had to be there type of experience that's being given to us by the writer of Hebrews. I'll give it a two and a half, maybe a three. Can be our attitude. Not in what we say. We would never, you know, click on Yelp and be like two and a half stars for Jesus. No. But in the way that we act, in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, and in our affections, many times we're giving him a two and a half. And we're not soaking in what the writer is trying to tell us. And, and I'm not sure why. 
Maybe Jesus is simply a pit stop on the way to the next thing that we're doing. Maybe we've never hiked down into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe we're content with looking from the edge, just kind of looking over and moving on. Maybe we're content with saying we've been there and done that. Yep, went to the Grand Canyon. You've been to Niagara Falls. Maybe we've hung around it so long that it's not all that special. Like if your house was built on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, after 50 years, you'd be like, yep, Grand Canyon's still there. But regardless of the reason, here's the result. Our souls are in danger if Jesus and his great salvation are not captivating us. I believe this is one of the great motivations behind the writing of this letter to the Hebrews. To captivate the reader with an image of Christ that should leave one stunned with his beauty. In addition to doing that, he wants to do something else. He wants to to startle them with the dangerous nature of God. And we see this sprinkled throughout the book. These are some, maybe some valleys in the book. So we look at these mountaintops and, and these are some of the dark valleys of this book. Look with me at Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape from just retribution if we neglect this great salvation? Danger! In chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, we see this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. God sees all. No creature is hidden from his sight. His word lays open even our thoughts and intentions, and we will stand naked and exposed to God on the day when we will have to give an account of all that we have done and all that we have thought and why we did all of it. We'll have to give an account of that. God is dangerous, We see in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful judgment, a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then in verse 30, it says this. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, The Lord will judge his people. Tells us that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the writer is presenting this really dynamic view of who God is. On one hand, incomparable in beauty and wisdom and grace and provision. And on the other, incomparable in terror and justice and fury against sin. And he wants us to rightly fear God because of our sin and his holiness while intending that such fear and need of salvation would drive us to hope in God. These two things held together, beauty and danger. 
This vision of God as both beautiful and dangerous speaks very clearly to, to the way that we think about Christian life here at Northwig. We believe that God wants us to order our lives around three loves, to love God, to love the church, and to love those who are far from God. And we must hold the, the beauty and danger of God together as we love him, or else he becomes formed in our image, either a softy forgetting his own holiness or a terrorist neglecting mercy. We must hold beauty and danger of God together as we love our brothers and sisters in the church, or else we become a community that looks nothing like God, either unholy or oppressive. And in our love for our neighbors, there is no greater motivation than the manifold beauty of God and the danger of God, those two things together. He is, he is the beautiful salvation that our neighbors need most desperately, and yet they are in danger of falling into his furious hands. Both of these things are true, and they should motivate us in the way that we love. You should be driving and encouraging and speaking of God's great beauty to your neighbors, and they should understand that he is dangerous. If you'll allow me to return to the Grand Canyon, if we have a minimized perspective of God's beauty, why would our neighbors ever want to know him more? If we don't think he's beautiful, why should they want to know he's beautiful? If they perceive that Jesus is not all that great in what we say and how we live, then why should they take a look at him? If he's not great for you, he's not beautiful to you, then why should he be beautiful to anyone else? When Jake told me the, the Grand Canyon was not all that, it, it removed all motivation to ever go to the Grand Canyon. Why, why would I get in my car and drive for three days to go, eh, two and a half stars? Why would I drive three days to look at a dent in the ground? And likewise, my neighbors might say this, why would I reorder my life to pursue Christ if Noah, who is a Christian, doesn't seem to find it all that important to talk about? Because my neighbors could say that. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of Christ and his great salvation compels us to speak. Behold his beauty, look at his beauty. Get into the beauty of who he is. Our neighbors are in danger and they're speeding off the cliff. And God has put you in their life so that you can speak to them of his beauty and of his danger. These things run in the back of our minds when we talk to our neighbors, but many times we don't know what to say. We're not really sure how to get there. We're not really sure how to make that transition. You have to believe this for yourself first and have this square in your mind first before it makes sense to tell someone else. And then when you are tightly holding on to the great beauty and the great danger of who God is, then it makes sense to speak to your neighbors. And I think for some of us, we, we have to get there. We have to do the work to get there. But as we think about speaking to our neighbors this morning, I wanted to invite uh, a member of ours to come up and, and talk to you a little bit about how she does this, why she does this, what this, what this looks like for her, uh, so that you can get a glimpse of, well, how might I do this? What might this look like in my own life? It's easy to kind of 
to talk about it, but I want you guys to get a kind of a, a firsthand look at what that might look like. Morning. Morning. How are you? Will you tell me your name? I'm Cheryl Outwater. My oh. husband and I have been members here about two years, and he's at the men's retreat. Otherwise, he would be here with me. Great. Well, thank you for speaking with us this morning. So I heard that you had a visitor at your house earlier this year. Will you tell me, tell me about that visitor? Right, right. And um, so I pray one of my consistent prayers thank every you. day is I have the opportunity to share the love of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I expect God to pick people in my path that need to hear about his grace and his salvation. So um, we've, even though our house is fairly new, we've had a good number of appliance repairmen in. Um, in December, my dishwasher stopped. It wasn't even two years old and got all that blinking messages and we did everything we could to get that started. So we turned off the power. I washed dishes for three or four days. And then here comes our repairman. Well, as soon as he turned it on, the dishwasher worked. So I said to him, well, I obviously don't need a dishwasher repairman today. I believe you're here by divine appointment. Mm. And I talked to him about Jesus, the reason for the season. But most recently, our Sonos system didn't work, neither did our burglar alarm. So we called in the repairman, and um, I, I got to know him just a little bit. You know, we had a little small talk. I gave him some espresso, which he loved my espresso. Learned that he and his wife and little girl were from Youngsville. He was from Peru. Um, so that's how I sort of, those are the two, two men. Yeah. So, so you got this guy in your house, uh, you know, either situation. What, what is motivating you? Because it's kind of crazy, right? Because you're like, I want to tell this person, but it's like jumping off the, the high dive, right? Well, first of all, I've already prayed. And okay. I pray. As I meet people, I am praying in my spirit. Okay. God, give me an opening. Somebody asked me recently, because, uh, what is your line? Do you have a line? No, I don't have a, a, a pickup line. I don't, I, I don't have a line. I really pray, and I want to meet them where they are. If I'm in a cab, and it's a Muslim cab driver, uh -huh. I might say, who do you say Jesus is? Uh -huh. And uh, so, I, so I meet them where they are. So with him, I knew he lived in Youngsville, which was close by. And I said, um, well, So you had gotten to know him. You're kind of talking yeah, with him. I and, talked to him a few yep. minutes. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. just grab him when he yep. walked in the door. And um, though I was primed and ready for him. You know, <laughs> I prayed. If, you know, if you pray, God yes, put people I believe in my that. path. Yes. You expect them to be there. Yes. So I said, well, would you be looking for a dynamic church to raise your daughter in? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we go to the Catholic church some. I said, would you call yourself a Christian then? See, I'm walking mm -hmm. down that mm -hmm. road with him. He hesitated, so I jumped right in and I asked the question. And the question is, if you died today, do you know that you know that you know that you would then be welcome into heaven because God has forgiven your sins through Jesus? Mm -hmm. Do you know that you know that you would be accepted in because of Jesus? And he said, no, hmm. I can't say that. Hmm. So I said, well, we need to talk some more. Um, and I said, would you and your wife be willing to come and visit with us? I said, oh, my husband does wonderful grilled salmon. Mm -hmm. Come and eat with us. How he can you say no to that? He gave me his phone number. He gave me his email. So I expected to see him again mm -hmm. by invitation. But then the Sonos was under warranty 
thank the Lord because it would be an expensive piece to replace. So he came back in a week. Even though he, he, he had to come back again. And he t when we realized someone was coming, he said, it, well, somebody's coming. It may or may not be me. I was mm -hmm. so glad. And I was preparing my heart. And when I realized it was him, I even asked our home group to be mm -hmm. praying that, great, we yeah. can reach the, that we can uh, present the gospel. So before he left, he did his diagnostics. And I said, you know, we talked about your faith and your relationship with Jesus last week. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. He was so open and receptive. Mm -hmm. And I have an app that I never used before uh, on my uh, cell phone called Share Your Faith. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very good. It has a narrative. It uses the chasm. It uses the bridge method. Mm -hmm. You stop and you ask me questions. And my husband and I were talking to him with our experiences and augmenting it. It gets to the place, where do you say you are on this cross? Are you over here in sin? And you know, most people say, well, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I live a good mm -hmm. life. I think I'm over here. And we'll say, that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you need Jesus. So uh, at the end, he, um, he, he, he was ready. He said, I'm ready to pray. Mm -hmm. So we led him through the sinner's prayer. We gave him a copy of the Gideon's Bible, mm -hmm. Raymond's a Gideon. Mm -hmm. And I said, now we want, he said, I wanted my daughter to be raised in faith. So we made arrangements. He already had in his mind a date when they could come for dinner. Oh, yeah. That's great. So we got a new baby. That's fantastic. But you can't leave a baby by the side. That's exactly right. <laughs> you got to take care of him. You got to encourage you him. disciple him. I mean, That's exactly this is right. a brand new baby. So I told him. Um, so his wife came over for dinner mm -hmm. and his little girl. And we just talked to him. Uh, and made friends with them. Um, some people believe you have friends and then you share the message. In this case, we share the message and mm -hmm. then we develop sure. a relationship. So at the, the end of the meal, sitting on my porch, um, I said, you know, we've been talking to your husband about Jesus. I want to show you this app. And she was so tender towards the Lord. So we prayed for her. We called her husband over. We called my husband over. We called her little girl. So around the table, we shared Jesus. And, you know, we all love babies. Don't we love babies? And to have a new baby mm -hmm. in the kingdom of God is the most joyful thing. Mm -hmm. So now we got some work to do. Yes. Well, so um, I've got, we've got her. Um, we're inviting them to small group, which we will have in our home this Friday night. I gave their daughter a little children's Bible. And I thought they would read that and mm -hmm. learn the Bible yeah, to her. Sure. But yesterday afternoon, I had some mothers in for tea, some two sweet mothers here, and I thought, well, I'm going to invite her. And uh, these young mothers just ministered to her. We hear that she's got some real mental health issues and extended family. So mm -hmm. we are setting the stage That's to great. be their friend. Well, I, I think in this, you can clearly see the motivation of Christ's greatness and, and the danger that people are in, apart from knowing Christ for themselves. And I'm really encouraged by the fact that you kind of jumped off the diving board and, and kind of prepared yourself in prayer for that and God responded to that and you did the hard work of just asking that question that, that goes that direction. You've got to step out into the water as Peter. Yes, that's exactly right. Thank you so much. So a lot of different ways to share with people. Uh, one thing that I do is I ask people if I can pray for them. Uh, then I tell them a little bit about what God's done in my life, and if they'll let me continue, I'll share a, a simple explanation of the gospel. 
uh, that we've just talked about with them. Um, and I continue to push the conversation as far as it will go. And, and there's, there's lots of different ways to, to do that. Um, this morning, if you're feeling like, man, I just don't know what I would say, uh, I want to I ask you to do something. If you're feeling that way, you're saying, I want to say something, I want to speak to people, I believe these things, but I just don't know what to say. I want you to send me an email. My email is noahj at Northwake. Don't be pranky emailing me, though. I know how y'all can be. <laughs> Rob Huntley's not here. Um, so send me an email, send me an email, and say, hey, I just need to be encouraged in sharing my faith, and I will put together an opportunity for you and other people that you know. Uh, if you've got other people that, that uh, are in the same boat, we can get you guys together and do some training and teaching and help you think about how to do this a little more clearly. If, uh, if you're in a small group and you're leading a small group or you're in a small group and you think this would be really good for my small group, let me know. Myself or another one of our leaders will come and, and train you guys and get you to the place where you feel like, okay, I know exactly what I'm supposed to say. So really, let's make sure that there is no excuse for not sharing this fantastic message. Um, for some of you, you feel like, okay, I already know. I already know what to say. Uh, what I want you to do is to make a commitment to share this great, wonderful salvation, this wonderful King Jesus, to share him with someone in the next two weeks. I want you to make that commitment. Begin praying today. Some of you might be like, okay, I know, I know who I need to, to share this with. Write their name down, right? Make a note of that. If you don't know, start praying. God, bring someone to me put someone in my path, or God ram me into someone, like put me in somebody else's path. He will do that. I guarantee you, if you pray that prayer, he will bring someone into your path, and then you will be faithful to share with them. With all of this said, Christ has to be our greatest possession, our greatest joy, and we have to see him as our great salvation. We also have to be convinced that our neighbors, that they're in danger. And that this beauty and danger of who God is, is motivating and pushing us and grabbing our affections for God and for our neighbors. And that we would speak out of that. I believe that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to, to bring us into If that's, not fair, if that's not square for you, if you're not square, if you're not um, deeply believing that Christ is excellent, he is great, I would love to talk to you about that. So, so please, come, come talk with me afterwards. Uh, if you're a believer and you're kind of like, meh, two and a half stars, but you know that's not right, let me encourage you. Spend some time in the book of Hebrews. Read it again. Press into it. Climb down into the character of Christ that you might see who he really, really is. Spend time praying and pursuing God this week. You know, put off all those other things that you do that take your time and affections that you might point and direct your affections towards Christ. Let me leave you with this, this really amazing statement that's made in Hebrews 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> it says this, we, we read it before, it says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. May you hold on to your confidence in Christ and boast in the hope that he's established. Let's pray together. 
Father, might we boast? Might our boasting be in you? Might our boasting be in this great hope and confidence that you've given us? And that that would spill over into the lives of our neighbors, that, that it would just be a normal thing for us to talk about you because you are so near to us and on our lips, in our hearts, that our affections for you are grand. God, I ask that you would bring us people, give us words, give us conviction, and let us see the greatness of Christ that we might proclaim that and boast that with our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.